The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello, you're listening to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, as calls to defund the police grow louder stateside and the Black Lives Matter protests make us rethink the police force here in the UK, we ask, do the police really treat black people differently? And if so, why? Also on the podcast, coronavirus may have pushed the US elections into the background, but they're coming back again. From the perspective of the British government, would Joe Biden be a better president? And last, it's become almost a cliche to say, after coronavirus, we will X. But will the pandemic really change anything with the way we live our lives? I speak to a sceptic and an optimist. First up, the police are in the news again. In the issue this week, former police commissioner for Surrey, Kevin Hurley, writes about what it's like to be on the front lines and why so many young black people loathe the police. He joins me down the line now, together with Katrina French, who is the chief executive of campaigning group Stopwatch, an organisation which works to raise awareness and campaign against excessive use of force in stop and searches. So Kevin, to start with, you write about this Batari box effect in your piece this week. Can you tell us about what it is? Well, basically, it's a, it's a psychological tool that describes the way in which people react to each other. So what it says is, what you do influences me, so I will react to that and then influence you, and then you will react to that and influence me. So it becomes a kind of spinning, vicious circle. So people on two sides of a conversation react to each other, and that tends to inform how they will be. How does it apply in the police context? Well, I mean, in, in, the poli- in the policing context, if I, if I come at this from a point of view of a, a police officer, you will react to whichever community or group of people you're policing, um, and gradually after a while you start to become aware that you get treated or spoken to in a particularly, particular way. So it, it can quite often vary. But, so we'll talk specifically about dealing with uh, people of African-Caribbean heritage. If, you, if when you first join the police, your first interactions with young black males are hostile and negative and they start shouting at you and calling you racist and so on and shoving you about, then that's going to affect your perception. And the next time you'll go back and you'll kind of discuss that with colleagues, they'll give you a view, which will have been shaped by that. And then you'll experience that again. And in the end, you start to deal with young black, black men in particular in a less than sensitive way than you might otherwise have done. Similarly, if you're a young black male, because within uh, the social groups you're mixing, there will always be going on about police abuse and police abuse and uh, keep black people down and so on, and which is understandable, then of course when they deal with police, that's going to happen. Kevin, are you saying then that police through interactions with black people have tended to become more aggressive when they deal with black people than with other people? No, what I'm saying is that they react to what's in front of them. So generally, and I mean, I've got to tell you, not every policeman's perfect, far from it. Some are bullies, I can tell you that. And there are some bigots in, in policing. But it, the, when, when you get a situation where whenever you go and stop a black person who you're a bit concerned about, for whatever reason, whether they're speeding or alternatively, 
that people have said, we've just been robbed by a couple of black kids, and you go and stop and speak to a couple of black kids who fit the description, you, the immediate reaction you will often get is one of hostility, which therefore drives the police officer to be defensive. And this is what I'm talking about, the Batari box. It's a vicious circle where the police will then respond in a particular way. Katrina, you work, you lead an organisation called Stopwatch. Can you tell us about the work that Stopwatch does? Stopwatch promotes fair, effective and accountable policing. We challenge the disproportionate use of stop and search, the increasing use of stop and search exceptional powers, such as when Section 44 was introduced. And we highlight the weaknesses in the accountability mechanisms. For the last 21 years, since Sir William McPherson's recommendations, we've seen that ethnic disparity in policing around stop and search has worsened, so much so that you're nearly 10 times more likely as a black male to be stopped and searched than your white counterpart. So there's a real issue here with how the police, not just police communities, but who's viewed with such suspicion that they warrant such police attention in the first place. From your work, do you see this Batari box effect that Kevin is talking about? What we see is people who actually have no no dealings with the police, but via stop and search encounter and a police officer's perception of them because they're black and young, that this then starts into, why would you pick on me? I was going, we've seen it in COVID, people going to the shop to get milk, had handcuffs put on them by plainclothes officers just jumped out, no explanation whatsoever. So yes, there is something about, we don't need to call it a Batari box, we're Jamaican, we say for every action, there's a reaction. That's what it is. For every action, there's a reaction. Unfortunately, the police are a public institution. They're paid public servants. They should maintain professionalism at all times. They have integrity to uphold. So as far as I'm concerned, you can't be asking 12, 13, 14-year-olds who are often scared of the police because the police have batons, pepper spray. They've seen what the police do to black people in this country and abroad to expect them to, to not look nervous when they're being stopped and searched or to feel aggrieved when 80%, 75% of the time when the stop and search is conducted, I think it's So Kevin, I mean, Katrina there brought up the instances that have happened during this pandemic when people, disproportionately people who are from BAME communities have had interactions with the police during the pandemic for breaking lockdown or for perceived breaking of lockdown. Yeah, that's, that's undoubtedly true. So why do you think disproportionately that has happened? Well, I mean, I, I, would, be, I would be guessing here but I think there's a, there's a couple of issues here. First off, the police really did not want to have to enforce the COVID legislation because it's pretty dubious, it's pretty nebulous. Um, but the problem that you do have is young people of all colours have tended to be reckless about their behaviour and going out and breaking the COVID regulations. And we see that all the time, whether it's, whether it's parties or just gathering on street corners. If we now return to what I'm saying about the Batari box and reaction and gets an action. What will, what I suspect is happening is that police officers go up to groups of youths and say, move on, go home. They give them a bit of attitude, generally, because young people will do that to police regardless of colour. And if they don't move on, they will then be warned again. Well, unfortunately, because of the Batari box situation, this, this kind of interaction with black youths is likely to go bad quicker than it will go bad with white youths. It's just, it's just a, re- it's a result of learned behaviours on both sides of the equation, if you like. So, Kevin, do you think that this is something that can be educated out of police officers? Or what is no. the solution to... No, definitely not. But what, what, we're, what we are witnessing here is, first off, the way the black community were treated over the last three, four hundred years 
by the British and Europeans was appalling, snatched from homes, dragged off into slavery, uh, raped by people. I, I mean, you know, one, one thing I wrote that has been edited out of the article was, what must it be like for a light-skinned woman of Jamaican heritage to have a name like Mackenzie? They know that their great-great-grandmother has probably been raped by a white overseer from Wales or Scotland. That's a terrible heritage to carry in the back of your mind. If we now fast forward that back to coming here in the Windrush generations in the early 50s, 48 and the early 50s, where signs were up, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, all of that going on, and the police force at that time, for example, being made up of predominantly ex-servicemen from the Second World War, and also people joining the police who policed our colonies, who would have had the, the bigoted values that a lot of British people had at that time about black people. It's no wonder within black culture, particularly Jamaican culture, people start to think badly of the police. If we then carry that on, the police would have carried on with elements of that culture bouncing back off each other, dealing with black people's aggravation, got to be firm with them, and so on. So what we've actually got here is a, is a vicious circle that dates back that far. Now, the only way you're going to deal with that is not by holding the police to account, not by videoing them, not by sacking them, and so on, because it's actually not the police's problem. This is a societal problem. So you need to go back to the very beginning and assist people with parenting, regardless of their social backgrounds, but certainly also helping young black mothers who end up in situations where they're struggling with no money, low-paid jobs. What about young white mothers? Why is it young black mothers? I, I, Cindy, at this present moment, I'm finding this, this conversation very difficult for, to listen to. As a black woman with the name French from Jamaica, all these things about what it was like to be raped and all of this stuff, I'm finding it very difficult. I'd like to get back to policing. I've come here to speak about policing. I didn't realise I was going to have a history lesson by, some, by somebody. How many people have died in custody at the hands of of police officers and we're going to pretend as though this has got something to do with someone not teaching their kids how to be respectful. Since my grandparents came into this country they were honest law-abiding people. We didn't come here to make problems. Nevertheless how we were treated by the country, how we've been treated by pretty much every institution since as a people has been one of neglect. We had the death of Rayshawn Charles in 2017, we've had the death of Kevin Clark, you know we've had the death of Sean Rigg. So please let's be clear this is not about black people needing to be socialized and civilized properly. It's about an institution recognizing that it's still institutionally racist, that it's still underserving certain communities, and that those communities want to have their voices heard. And they're very upset at the moment that in a global pandemic in London, we saw over 40 odd thousand stops and searches, which is the highest in seven years, with police with no PPE. Black people, Asian people are more disproportionately impacted by COVID, but yet the police are engaging with them when 80% of the time there's nothing found and without protective equipment. For me, that's a disservice to the people that we're meant to be serving. And that's what we should be talking about, not a history lesson. So let's move on, Katrina. I was having a look at the Stopwatch website this morning and you, the website consistently talks about the last 20 or 30 years. Can you give us an idea of what's changed in the last 20 or 30 years? Or do you think it's things have got better? Or have those been when I've explained that the ethnic disparity has worsened since since 20 years ago, you were three or four times to be stopped then you're now eight or nine. So it's worsened. And what's also happened is we it, what's got better? What has got better? Police now 
are meant to be recording things better. So we had HMIC and the pill legitimacy reports and we've had the best use of stop and search scheme, although it was voluntary and not mandatory. We have seen some, and I have to give Theresa May her credit, in 2014-15 when she recognised that, you know, it was an affront to young black men to be stopped and searched in such a way. And if, you know, we couldn't reform it, that she would be bringing in primary legislation. So there's been some movement. However, what we've seen in the last 20 years was the introduction of like terrorism laws, which then had to be repealed because they were so punitive and excessive that they weren't actually finding terrorists, but they were rubbing up the Asian community the wrong way. We've seen the introduction of body-worn video, and actually in London, no scrutiny, scrutiny group is allowed to watch that body wearing video at the moment, despite other people in the country, other scrutiny groups being allowed to do that. Uh, we've also seen the introduction of handheld technology, which has, for me, reduced on-the-spot accountability because now officers give you a, a, a number and they say, go to the police station. If, as Kevin has said, there's a negative or a distrustful relationship. Why would I want to go to a police station to get my grounds? I want them given to me on the spot. That's what Sir William McPherson said. Now we've got potentially tasers being used. We've had a young man running from the police has been paralyzed. He was running from the police, not at them, from the police, paralyzed now. So the police have to take recognition that you have a difficult job to do. We completely understand it, but ultimately it's a job. If you can't do it properly, then please find another job. Kevin, what about excessive force there? Katrina there mentioned this example of a young man who's running away from the police but being tasered and is now paralyzed. How should the police approach use the use of force in situations like these? I mean, let me just, just let me just clarify a couple of things with lots of stuff. And I do apologise if I've struck a nerve of your Jamaican heritage. 16 people died in police custody last year in the UK. Only one was black. Three people died last year in the UK shot by police. Only one was black. So very far from the narrative that one hears that police are killing people in custody, in fact, white people are far more likely to end up dead in custody. But to, to move on with this, and this is a very important question, we can shout and scream at the police as much as we like, but the main cause of unexpected death of young black males is murder by young black males. This really is a, a simple question really for my, my um, fellow interviewees. Do you want the police to assist you in stopping young black males killing each other because you've, we've got a situation when they find, when they meet the hostile narrative, which they see all the time, if I may say, I've seen some evidence of it here today, they're giving up on trying to police the black community, which is awful for black mothers because I do not want to see any more black mothers losing their sons to guns or knives or to life imprisonment. We need to stop immediately being hostile and getting into difficult adversarial situations like starting to develop on this situation. When I started to speak to you about the heritage of black people, it was because I understand and wanted to indicate that I'm empathising with a lot of the issues that goes on and I wasn't able to do so because you you just wanted to jump in on Indy, I've got to go for another meeting. When is this going to end? I've really got to go. Katrina, we appreciate your time. Would you like to give just the final word on the on the issues stop and search has been used for generations in a way which harms black communities most of the stop and search that's conducted in england and wales is for low-level drug possession yes 
violence is an issue, but stop and search has no, has not been proven to have any impact on serious youth violence. And that's from reports from the College of Policing and the Home Office. So what I implore people to do is to look at the evidence based around stop and search and understand the impact it has on communities and listen to them. So it's not about saying take away the police power, it's understanding that in many circumstances, that power is what has caused the distrust of the community. So we can't then say we're using it to protect you. So that's what I'd like to end on. In, in 2008 in London, there were 29 teenage murders. Five years later, they were down to seven teenage murders. Virtually all the kids who were dying were black kids. Most of the assailants were black kids. The reason why the murders were reduced as they were was by enhanced targeted stop and search on black youth gangs. So we can't have it both ways. We either accept that more and more black youths are going to kill each other, or we have to accept that police have to do stop and search. And I would invite members of the black community to encourage their young people to tolerate the experience and accept that they're going to be stopped and searched. And at the same time, police will also and will operate in a professional manner because they're body-worn cameras. But until we, we stop this hostile narrative, this is going to carry on. Kevin and Katrina, we'll have to stop it there, but thank you very much for coming on. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And next, relations between the British government and American presidents can be a little bit difficult. In less than half a year, America may well have a new president in Joe Biden. James Forsyth writes in this week's issue that Downing Street may find Joe Biden a little bit easier to deal with. James joins me now, together with Kate Andrews. James, can you first explain why you think that Downing Street might be crossing their fingers for Joe Biden to win? So... Normally at this time, every four years, you know, Whitehall begins to look across the Atlantic, follow the US presidential race kind of compulsively. Now, that, that isn't happening to the same extent this time around because of coronavirus. So, you know, there's a lot else going on. But I think there is an interesting question here, which is, you know, who is the better ally for the UK, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Now, Donald Trump is rhetorically pro-Brexit. He has completely flipped on its head the Barack Obama back of a queue line. But this hasn't delivered very many practical benefits to Brexit Britain. You know, Robert Lighthizer, his, the USTR, his trade representative, said the trade deal is not going to be ready before the election. So there's not going to be any trade US-UK trade deal in Trump's first term. And I also think there's the fact that any trade deal struck on Trump's watch is going to be so favourable to US agricultural interests that tend to be concentrated in the states that vote for Trump that it's going to be a very hard sell here. Then I think you add two other things to this. One is China. The democratic world is now clearly in a new ideological contest with China. Is Trump the best person to lead that? I mean, there's distinct... There is... Skepticism about that, you know, the, the WHO, you know, he just walks away rather than trying to engage there. And he, I think, inflames anti American sentiment, which makes it harder to rally the democratic world. Then you add in Russia. UK policy on Russia is, you know, one of the, you know, Boris Johnson you know, is not a man prone to admitting mistakes. 
when the spectator asked him for the biggest mistake he's made, he said, look, on Russia, I thought I could reset relations when I was foreign secretary, put things on a better path, and I failed. And the Salisbury poisoning that happened after that has left this massive impression on him. Look at his part of his rationale for why you need to bring the development budget into the foreign office is so that you can spend more in the Ukraine and Western Balkans to counter Russian meddling. As long as Donald Trump is the US president, the US is going to be an unreliable ally on Russia because we know that Trump wants to cut some kind of grand bargain with Putin. And as always, that hovers over any attempt to support countries in Russia's near abroad. So I think if you begin to look at these things, you can see that while Joe Biden would not be as as enthusiastic an ally for Brexit Britain as Donald Trump, he might actually be a more useful one. Kate, on Brexit, I mean, this is the man who was vice president to Obama when Obama said that we'd be back of the queue if Brexit ever happened. Is Biden really a Brexit ally? No, he's not a Brexit ally, but I think for someone like Joe Biden, it's done and dusted. I mean, it's the political affairs of another country to begin with, and it's one that has already been carried out. The UK has left the European Union. I don't think Joe Biden or anyone in his team would think that you were going back in. So the question there, which James talks about in his column, is where are the preferences going to lie? Is it going to be towards the EU or towards the UK? But I think given the special relationship and how far back that goes, you don't need Joe Biden necessarily to be the biggest Brexit ally, at least rhetorically, because he is somebody who's going to value and appreciate the relationship with the UK, regardless of whether it's in or out of the European Union. I don't think that would be a deciding factor in the way that Joe Biden makes decisions in relation to the UK either way. I would just put one thing in in parenthesis to what Kate said. The one exception to that is the the Irish protocol. I think a Biden White House and uh, Capitol Hill in the Biden era would, would keep a close eye on that on the Irish border issue. And if there was a sense that the UK was backsliding on the commitments that it had made to try to keep that border as is, then I think there would be issues. So I think Kate is right that there is a kind of sense it's happened, that the Biden lot are, to put it mildly, unenthusiastic about it. But I think that the Irish border is the one thing which would, you know, post-Brexit that could, could cause problems about Brexit in terms of, you know, the direct relationship between the US and the UK. And the Irish border may even trump, no pun intended, uh, who was in the Oval Office. Congress has already indicated that they would have serious issues striking any kind of trade deal with the UK if Ireland were to be put in a difficult position. Uh, so even if Donald Trump were to stay in the White House, if, if the Democrats control any part of it and they're likely to keep the House come November, that could prove difficult. And Kate, on China, Biden has sounded a much more hawkish tone in the campaign so far. But historically, he has been a supporter of an engagement with China policy, you know, in in the last two decades. So is he really going to be harder on China than maybe Trump would be? So I think China's the really interesting one, because arguably, we haven't had uh, American president who has been particularly hostile to Russia for a while now. If you remember, President Obama said to Putin, I'll have more flexibility after the 2012 election. Donald Trump, as James notes, has really wanted to strike some kind of agreement, some kind of deal with, with, with Putin. And I think that Biden could be a real shift. As James talks about in his column, he will emphasize democracies over dictators. And I think he'll ethically, as well as practically speaking, make decisions based on that. China's the difficult one in this election because whilst John Bolton has recently written in his book that Donald Trump is much cozier to China than he'd let on, whilst practically speaking the trade wars and this and that haven't necessarily helped America, it is very difficult to say that the president has not struck a very 
hard line on China. Rhetorically, he's created a world spectacle out of his position on China. So I think if Joe Biden does try to frame himself as the hawkish, I'll be tough on China candidate, he will be going head to head with somebody who has many, many statements on the record and many actions on the record that would suggest that they are worried about China too. So I think trying to out China Donald Trump could prove a bit difficult. I think that's the one country, actually, when we look at these two candidates where Trump still might have the edge, regardless of actions. Rhetorically, worldwide, everybody knows that the president wants to be tough on China. And James, when it comes to China as well, I suppose Joe Biden will be thinking much more about free trade, less protectionist on this matter. Could it be the case that he wins the presidency, then gets lured by Chinese trade, Chinese money, other directions, and so becomes less of a hope for leading this anti-China alliance? So the first thing is, Xi's China is very different. I don't think you can assume, you cannot look at the current trajectory China is on and say that China is slowly, gradually opening up to the world, liberalising at its own pace. It is clearly not. You know, we now have President Xi fought. This is going backwards in terms of political opening, and it is becoming much more aggressive in terms of the rest of the world. Now, Joe Biden is an old Washington hat, first elected to the Senate in 1988. He was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You know, when I was in DC, Joe Biden always sat firmly in the for good or ill, in the mainstream of US foreign policy thinking. The mainstream of US foreign policy thinking has changed its mind on China dramatically recently. It now sees China as a direct threat, as a rival. It is now, you know, what is one of the things that is, I, I think probably cost the UK a huge amount in Washington was its decision to allow Huawei into its 5G network. This is felt on both sides of the iron. You look at some of the, the advisors around Biden, things they've been writing on China, are very hawkish. And all that's been driven home by the way that China has behaved towards Australia during this crisis, you know, US allies. And I think there is a there is a growing sense that, you know, whoever wins the presidency in November, we are going to see a massive American effort to essentially fund rivals to China in that technology sphere. For example, you know, one of the UK arguments in mitigation to the, to the White House and was, look, who else was going to build our 5G network for us? I mean, you're going to find huge amounts of US money being poured into firms to try and you know to try and beef up competition you, know, you had trump's attorney general suggest well why doesn't the u.s just buy nokia and ericsson to two european firms that lead in this and just shove cash into them in the way that china has shoved cash into huawei to try and make it uh, such a powerful player here so i think you are you and kate are both right that biden is is not going to go for the kind of trump style declaratory tariffs on china but in terms of trying to counter Chinese technological dominance, which the Chinese are very frank about wanting in terms of all these industries. I think he will take a hard line. And I think you'll also see him take a much harder line on trying to support democracies, stand up for the smaller nations in the region. You know, you expect to hear much more about Vietnamese fishing boats that are being pushed about by the Chinese in the South China Sea. So I think you will see that on China and from Biden an attempt to kind of rally the democratic world against China far more than you have from President Trump. And I think ultimately, one of the things that lots of US allies kind of privately think is Biden will make it easier to be pro-American. And that that will make things a bit easier. You know, there's a kind of, for example, when the Trump administration withdrew Hong Kong's special privileges of financial center on the grounds that Hong Kong no longer had autonomy, people have a moment of hesitation. Are they doing that because it's really true and right, which I personally think it is? Or is this actually about trying to grab some 
more market share for New York. And I think that that is one of the problems with Trump, which is the America first, the protectionism, makes people wonder, you know, what's the motivation here? What's the motivation here? I think Biden will find it easier to to bring countries together and in a kind of democratic hedge against China. I think James summed that up so well at the end of his column this week, talking about how Trump does make it easier for people to express anti-American sentiment and essentially get away with it. And we saw a lot of this in the 2019 general election. I think one of the strongest talking points that Labour had was being anti-US-UK free trade deal, protecting the NHS, but it was all framed in terms of Donald Trump. You don't want a Trumpian deal. You don't want Trump to run away with our deals. And that was so much harder to do when you insert Biden, where Trump's name is. It just doesn't ring true in the same way. And of course, you know, the president brings a lot of that upon himself. He is such a decisive figure quite intentionally, but it has allowed a lot of people who aren't as supportive of America to say it without having to explicitly be anti-American. And James, you began your column by saying how historically the UK has sometimes found treading this line between supporting two presidential candidates. In the coming months, what should the British government do to sort of keep Biden on the sweet side without angering Trump if he does win? I think this is, look, it is difficult at the best times. It's particularly difficult with Donald Trump because he doesn't obey normal diplomatic protocol. Look at his interventions into UK domestic politics or look at, you know, the John Bolton's, you know, he's also not shy as the John Bolton book makes clear of asking foreign leaders for favours that might help him domestically. Now, the, the famous example of totally getting it wrong is John Major in 1992 when his political machine is trying to help the Bush team dig up dirt on Bill Clinton his time at Oxford, you know, when and, and why he wasn't in Vietnam and all this stuff. That that is how you definitely don't do it. You know, the damage that that did meant that it wasn't until Tony Blair became Prime Minister in ninety seven that the that the, that the relationship between Downing Street and the White House really recovered from the, the shenanigans of the ninety two campaign. I think Boris Johnson is a is a cannier figure. I think that he can read the polls and I think you will see the UK can maintain kind of studious distance however you know much text contact Boris Johnson is in with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump he's not going to get drawn into anything that looks like an endorsement I think there is a question which is you know is the UK doing enough to prepare one thing I'm you know, calling people around in Washington for this column is one thing that I think one missed opportunity was you know Boris Johnson was offered the keynote slot at the Munich Security Conference in February he turned it down the most senior minister sent was James Cleverly and I mean that meant that the UK missed out on a chance that some other European nations took which was to influence those around Biden because they are precisely the kind of people who go to things like the Munich Security Conference in that mainstream of US foreign policy. So I think there is a, there is going to be a, a challenge there. I think that personally, I think the whole way that the UK approaches Washington also needs to change. The British embassy in Washington has always concentrated on the White House almost exclusively. And as Kate was saying about trade deals, you need to be concentrating on Congress far more. The UK does not do a good job in terms of working the House and the Senate. It does a better job perhaps than any other country in terms of working the White House. It's going to need to change given the UK is now in control of its own trade policy, is going to need to change that emphasis and pay a lot more attention to working Capitol Hill as well as the West Wing. Kate and James, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And last, it's almost become a cliche to say after coronavirus, we will do X, Y, Z better. But is that really the case? Or will society just bounce back to pretty much where it was before? 
Matthew Paris posed the question in his column this week, and he joins me down the line now, together with Rory Sutherland, an optimist who wrote about how coronavirus will change the way we work and see work in last week's issue. Matthew, to start with, your column this week is all about the notion of shock. Can you tell us what you say? It, it's pretty well known that a, a, a good shock uh, can shock people out of a, a habit that they have got into or a state of mind that they have got into, a, a, a slap in the face, not necessarily literally a slap in the face, but being slapped in the face by fate can set people off down a new path. And I was exploring the possibility that uh, what might be true of individuals might be true of whole cultures or societies that are a big smack in the face um, for a whole way of living, which is in a way what, what, what we have had, could be a way of pressing the reset button. I, I'm not sure that it's going to be. I'm not at all confident, but but it could be. By that, you mean that coronavirus, the lockdown that we've had for the last few months, could make us do things differently in society? Yes, all, all the habits that we had, the habits of um, getting on the underground and going into work, that the habits of dining out with our friends in the, the, the evenings, the habit of dividing the day into the working part of the day and the non-working part of the day, all those things for a while have had to be suspended. And also, an awful lot of our socialising has been suspended and we've been restricted to just a very small circle of people. So that has come as a, a shock, I think, to the way we live. And perhaps it will prove a shock to the way we think. And I've read Rory's column and he, he makes a very convincing case for that being perhaps so. But I'm a little bit sceptical. Rory, can you tell us about your column? This this was a piece that you wrote for us last week and in which you say that remote working has gone from Dr Pepper to Coke in just a matter of months. Yes, I think that Matthew's absolutely right about the notion of shock. Uh, there's a wonderful experiment, I think, which demonstrates it, which is a system overall can become more intelligent if it undergoes external stressors. Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, is partly about this. There's a wonderful experiment where, uh, on the London Underground, three lines, I think, went on strike for a period of a few days. And a group of academics from several universities got the Oyster Card data and discovered that after the strike was over, a significant number of people who, during the strike, had been forced to adopt a new journey to work, continued to use that new journey after the strike had ended. And there's an element where a certain degree of enforced behavioural change can be valuable, in fact, in the sense that it forces you to discover things that... I mean, the reasons could have been many. I mean, they may simply have been adopting their own their old journey into work through habit or that it was the first one they, they'd ever tried. You're generally reluctant to experiment with your journey to work because you know at least if I follow the usual pattern I won't be late. It may be they discovered that since they'd first tried Route B, you know, a new M&S Simply Foods had opened at one of the stations, which made it more convenient. But it does seem that you can jolt people and jolt systems into a slightly more intelligent state, particularly as with this shock, which is unusual, in that it's been completely simultaneous. It's also, I think given us a little glimpse, you know, I mean, I wouldn't place myself as high on the environmentally conscious spectrum uh, compared to many people. But noticing, for example, that if you do go for a drive in your car, there are now dead insects on the car, 
which there always were in my childhood. Okay, now I'd completely forgotten this, and the fact that it's returned just gives me a glimpse of an alternative reality in the same way that simultaneous enforced working from home has given us a glimpse of not only those things we miss, but those things we were missing before. The fact that actually, maybe maybe there's a threshold question to remote working, which is it only really delivers its benefits when a certain number of people do it for a certain percentage of the time. Can I put to you, Rory, a, a, a couple of problems that I... I have with with, uh, with your analysis. Uh, firstly, most people's homes are, are not actually adapted for working from home. And it isn't just a matter of putting a screen up or buying a desk. There just isn't a room where somebody can isolate themselves from everybody else in the family. And a lot of the people who are talking about the joys of working from home, I've noticed are either relatively well off or relatively senior in the, the the positions that they're they're in, I, I've been on lots of Zoom calls with uh, with friends and colleagues. But what actually what struck me doing one the other day was that everybody had exposed beams. All of us, virtually all of us, you know, five or six people had exposed beams. And I thought this is giving me a sort of snapshot of the class structure of meetings like this. Now, how does a, a young woman or a young man? just joined the organisation, so to speak, really learn to integrate into the organisation, get the sense of team, get to know other people personally, and and indeed get in on the important Zoom meetings when they cannot any longer, as they used to, just kind of drift around the office, looking over people's shoulders, shaking hands and talking to people. Two things I'd say. I don't think even in my most extreme moments for flexible working advocacy. I never propose doing it 100% of the time or that 100% of people should do it. No. You're right about most people's homes not being perfect, although it's worth noting that the people for whom it's difficult vary highly. I mean, patently, if you've got a lunatic flatmate, if you're alone, the lack of social contact could be fairly uh, dismal. Surprising number of people, particularly once you notice that your commute is gifted back to you as discretionary time, regard that as such a significant improvement that they'd be unwilling to go back to the five day a week commute. And no one's, by the way, no one's proposing mandating this. I think offices should take account of the fact that the things you can't reproduce somewhere else are what an office should be about. We often talked about the paperless office. I've also debated saying maybe we need a screenless office in the sense that, you know, if you want to go and look at a screen, that's that's independent individual work. Do that where you do it best. It could be a library. Um, it could be, um, again, in this kind of secluded space, I think offices need, which they failed to provide. Or it could be at home. At the same time, if you want to be highly sociable, make the office you know, very good for those serendipitous interactions. I'd also make a point in terms of establishing teamwork among people. You're absolutely right that when people are being onboarded, they will want to be more sociable than people who, who are established. On the other hand, if this potentially means that we can recruit people without requiring they move to London with the extraordinary expense that entails, we've got to look at that trade-off as well.
we pay people at the moment and we worried endlessly about the tax rate. But when you pay young members of staff in London, it doesn't really matter what the tax rate is because 50% of their their income, after-tax income, disappears in transport and uh, lodging costs. Just going back to Matthew's thesis of coronavirus changing the world, I mean, Rory, you mentioned, the, you used the interesting word there, you said enforced. The, our, our lockdown so far obviously has been enforced. And when we talk about uh, becoming more climate conscious and having more wildlife around, if that, even if that is insects, you know, how much of the change to our lifestyle will just bounce back to what it was before as long as, as soon as we have the freedom to do so? I mean, we're hearing about July 4th being so-called Independence Day. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sceptical that people are just really going to keep to their new ways of living. Matthew, what do you think? I am too. And I think in, in, in terms of the way we individually conduct our day-to-day lives, we will slide pretty quickly back into living as, as we did before. I am, though, struck by the point that Rory made about our perceptions of, of the world and of the environment. Uh, the fact that whole Indian cities have been able to see the Himalayas for the the first time. The fact that from my balcony in London, I look out as I did, I popped down to London to do some work, looked out across at Canary Wharf and something was different and I wondered what it was. It was just so damn clear. I'd never seen it so clear before. Now, the understanding that there are more insects battering against our windscreens and that the air is is cleaner and, and that things are healthier... That, I think, has really permeated. And so I think politically, the green argument, the climate change uh, argument, the the, the live in a more ecologically responsible way argument, I think think those arguments have really gained traction and will gain traction politically. I think we can now appeal to people who will understand them a little better. Rory, do you think that the last few months of loss of freedom might make it more desirable that people bounce back with a renewed vigour. Boris Johnson was speaking this week about this bacchanalian royal <laughs> in, in pubs as soon as they open. I mean, some people will, and, and there's this wonderful Chinese phrase called revenge shopping, which was a post-COVID thing in China, which was a bout of kind of extreme retail therapy to make up for lost time. And some people, by the way, will as you say, overcompensate for a bit. You'll also see certain market surge. So the prospects for the car industry, there's some wonderful modelling from a company called Sandtable, which is a kind of agent-based modelling organisation. There will be a surge of car purchases, for example, because there are some people who absolutely need to replace their car, and those purchases have all been deferred by three or four months. But equally, there will be other people who will be going, do I really need to replace my car right now, and should it be electric? So one thing I think that's really true, we always talk about these recoveries as whether they're sort of V-based, bathtub-shaped, you know, W-based recovery. And of course, the truth of the matter is different business sectors and different people actually manifest completely different shapes. And so some people will essentially say, I'm making up for lost time either through necessity or desire, there will be other people. And one of the one of the groups I'm very sympathetic to, I mean, Matthew, I imagine nearly all your writing is done at home somewhere or in Derbyshire, having read you for yes. many, many years, or Spain, okay, or yes. on trains, perhaps. Or on trains, I mean, yes. yes. David Ogilvy yes. famously said he never wrote anything in the office. He said there are too many distractions. Uh, anything he wrote, he went home or went, went elsewhere. And... 
Introverts, by the way, are a group who I think have discovered they've been slightly bullied over the last 20 years, in that it's much easier for extroverts to bully introverts. Hey, come on, let's all go to Frankfurt. Or we've got to have a party. Whereas you can't really go around going, why can't we just all stay at home and read Proust? Okay. So the extent to which society is calibrated towards the extrovert interpretation seems to me something we might have noticed during this period, that the fact that anybody is happier this way is really, really revealing. And the fact that in many cases it's a majority of people who on balance prefer this, even if it isn't everybody all the time, it's a surprisingly high number of people who have said of this that there's something about this that I I really don't want to lose when I go back. My my grandparents uh, on on my father's side were introverted to the point of it being almost a mental disturbance. They they didn't like going out. They didn't like strangers calling. They didn't like anything to do with the outside world. They just wanted to stay at home and garden. And um, once when we were staying, uh, a stranger knocked at the door and both my grandparents hid behind the sofa and asked my mother to go <laughs> and, and, and answer the door. And now, now, Grandma and Grandpa would have just loved the last three months. They would have been in paradise and they would have been being praised for their so- sense of social responsibility rather than sneered at for being timid. Well, I have to say, I for one am looking forward to July 4th. Matthew and Rory, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as Tristram Hunt's diary, historian David Abalafia on benign examples of imperialism and how they're hard to come by, as well as James Bartholomew on this paradox of how the less something is a problem, the more people talk about it. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.